Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Morning, Upper Room Bolton. I was trying to remember when was the last time I was with you guys. It probably was something like two years ago. I'm so glad to be back here. I know you're only seeing me through video, but next week I'm looking forward to seeing you guys live and being able to connect with you after the service as well. I want you to listen to a few statistics. Uh, These are taken mostly from surveys and research that was done in the States, but I did a couple of quick comparisons and the results would be almost identical here in Canada as well. And if you're wondering why you need to look at these things, just hang in there with me and you'll see why. Uh, Bradford Wilcox, the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia, he kind of summarized some of his research in this area with this one sentence. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, white, black or Hispanic, most Americans are married or would like to marry. Now I want to focus on that second phrase for a minute and look at the one particular age group that perhaps is the most marriageable of all, the millennials age 19 to 37. 70% of that age group is single, whether never married or single again. Three quarters of them think marriage is a desirable end state. And if you look at just those who've never been married, 91% of them expect to be married. Well, in that case, how come so many of them are still unmarried? They give three basic reasons for that. Uh, They haven't found the right person, that's 30%. They aren't financially stable enough, that's 27%, and they're not ready to settle down, that's 22%. And the first two are actually linked together because the top requirement for a single woman is a man with a stable income. And yet, single men are less and less likely to be employed, and those that are, are not bringing home the bacon, at least not enough. And so what's happening is while there are enough single men, more single men than single women available for marriage, there are fewer employed single men than single women. And with women going back to the workforce as well, this disparity only increases. So while marriage is a desirable end state or expected end state, the likelihood of it is decreasing. And if I want to sum it up this way, here's how I can say it. Hope that the right person will come along at the right time gives way to resignation to the status quo. It's going to be this way. I might as well get used to it. Now, for married couples, and that's not just the 30% of the millennials, but in general, this same spirit of resignation can come in in some ways. In really difficult marriages that are characterized by a lot of conflict and stuff like that, Uh, It's bite my teeth and grind it out until the kids get old enough and then we can divorce and move our separate ways. Others perhaps for theological reasons or financial reasons or social pressures have to rule out divorce and so they just kind of have to hang in there till death do us part like those proverbial ships passing in the night. Maybe having conversations that are necessary for the mechanics of living but otherwise a state of resignation grips them. And then for some of those who just relatively recently married even, the discovery that the romance of courtship has given way to the hard work of marriage then very quickly precipitates questions like, is this what I signed up for? Is that all there is to it? Now, one of the most common ways, as Vijay and Dave have both pointed out to you already, to alleviate this spirit of resignation or the cloud of the status quo is to get something new, buy something, clothes, uh, buy an experience like a vacation or adventure. 
But what all that does is inject novelty, and novelty by its very nature dissipates very fast. And we need another injection of novelty, when what we are really needing and looking for, though we may not always know it, is vitality. What we need is a fresh wind of vitality to come into our single and married stage, to dispel that stale air of resignation and inject fresh hope and faith for transformation. And that's what this series is all about. Now you can see why I asked you to track with me through these statistics. On Easter Sunday, we were introduced to the fact that Jesus not only rose again from the dead and is alive today, but because of that, new life can come into every dimension of our lives, blowing away this uh, stale air of resignation and changing this resignation to the status quo. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how this might happen in the world of work and last week in the world of uh, friendships. What I want to do now is to talk for the next four weeks, and I'm thankful for the privilege of having four weeks to do this, is to talk about how, what this might look like, what this injection of new life and hope might look like when it comes to this problem of resignation to the status quo in singlehood and in married lives. And right at the very outset, I want to give you a controlling image so that you will come back each week to church, not just to the same old, same old, because you know what? That spirit of resignation can get into our churches as well. Ah, come in there 10 minutes late as I normally do, listen to a couple of songs, uh, have someone read the scriptures, listen to a sermon, uh, have them announcements and a benediction and off I go. I don't want you to come back just for that. But I hope this story will have you coming back each week with expectation and hope that vitality can actually be injected into our relationships, whether single or married, wherever we might be on that spectrum. It's a story that actually comes from the Bible. Luke, one of the biographers of Jesus, told this story. And you can read it for yourself in Luke chapter 24, but here's the Reader's Digest version. Two of Jesus' disciples were walking on that first Easter Sunday. They were walking from Jerusalem, sort of westward towards the Mediterranean Sea to a town called Emmaus, a few hours' walk. And they were busy talking with each other. They were rehearsing the three magnificent years they had spent with Jesus, uh, electrifying teaching that was so refreshing from all and different from all the uh, legalistic stuff that they used to hear from their religious leaders. Uh, they were talking about how his miracles had awakened hope that he was in fact the promised Messiah and he would break the tyranny of Rome. And all of a sudden, the crucifixion dashed all of those hopes. And what lay before them was same old, same old. Back to the fishing, back to the carpentry, back to eking out a near poverty level existence uh, and suffering under the cruel hardship of Rome. Anyway, this is what they were talking about when Jesus, and they didn't know it was him because the story says that Jesus kept them from recognizing him, joins himself to that conversation. He asks them, what are you guys talking about? And so they tell him all this as if he didn't know. Can you imagine the irony of that conversation? And then to their utter surprise, Jesus takes over. And they still don't know that it's him. And he walks them through their scriptures, all the way from the writings of Moses, right through to the present, to show them how this is exactly what the central thread of scripture was all about that Messiah had to suffer and die and then rose again and by this time it was almost uh, evening they were nearing their destination and so the two of them who just didn't know what to make of all of this said hey why don't you just come and have a dinner with us and stay with us customary East Middle Eastern hospitality now in that dinner Jesus did something very significant he took bread and he broke it and in that moment, they recognized those Jesus, and in that same moment, he was gone. 
Gone was all their fatigue even though they'd walked several hours. They went rushing back all the way to Jerusalem, probably another couple of hours walk, found the disciples and they told them, hey, this is what happened. And as he was talking to us, while he was instructing our minds to understand the scriptures, our hearts were burning within us, our eyes were open to see Jesus alive. And boy, we had all the energy that we needed to come back and tell you right away. You know, I'm telling you that story because that's what I'm hoping will happen over the next four weeks. That's what I want you to come back expecting. That as you and I spend time together, as I am teaching and preaching in the context of a worship service where we have sung praises to Jesus, that Jesus will join himself to us unexpectedly as on that first Easter Sunday. He will instruct our minds so we will say, I never saw it that way before. Or he will inflame our hearts and you might say, I never felt that way before. He will open our eyes to see him so we might say, that's who Jesus really is. And the net result of all of that is that he will energize our wills into action as well. That's my hope. And so I want to pray that right now. And for those of you who may not consider yourself followers of Jesus for whom prayer may be um, not a part of your life, uh, I'd like you to join me in that prayer, but just add a little sentence at the beginning. So to make it real for yourself, just say, hey, Jesus, if you really are living, if you really are alive, then do exactly what this prayer is going to ask us. But do it in such a way that I will know it isn't just emotion, but that something really is happening in my life. So will you join me as we pray together? Lord Jesus, I just ask you to do that. I believe with all of my heart that this is what you promised. (laughs) That in this context of, of a gathered group of people worshiping you, listening to the Bible explained, that you can actually do all of those things again. So instruct our minds, inflame our hearts, Open our eyes and energize our bodies to action. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today I want to talk specifically about singlehood. But those who are married, don't tune me out. Because what Jesus has to teach us about singlehood as he walks us through the Bible, through me, uh, is applicable to all of us. And in the next three weeks, as I'm going to be focusing on marriage and what infusion of new life can look like there, single people don't stay away because what you're going to learn about marriage has everything to do with you and the relationships that you're in as well. All right, so with that as a background, we're going to get to talk about what does new life for singlehood look like and entail. In the early 1990s, in the church that I used to serve in, uh, the pastor of women's and children's ministry was a single adult herself. And so she had a lot of single friends. And so she asked them to give her a list of some of the unintentional but hurtful messages that comments from married couples would be communicated to them. And here were some of the things on their list. If you're single and discontent, there's something wrong with you. You are less mature than couples. And the person who gave them that feedback said, this was shown, for example, in the small group of of which they were a part, where even though there was an older, more qualified single person, they chose a much less mature married couple to lead the group. Or, when is it your turn? (laughs) This was an unfeeling comment that was made at a wedding of a mutual friend where a well-adjusted single was attending, happily rejoicing, and someone asked her this question. Or expressions of surprise when a single person buys a house or furniture. The implicit assumption being, well, you live in an apartment, right? Why do you need all that furniture? Why would you want to buy a house? And then assuming that they have lots of time. And this came across in terms of pressure to do more work in the church. Why? Because you have so much time. Now, admittedly, these things were 28 years or so old. But, you know, on Easter Sunday, we had a few people over to our home, and including some singles. 
and we, the subject happened to turn, the discussion turned to marriage. And so I talked about this. And there were a couple of single gals in there who confirmed that exactly these kind of messages are still being communicated to them. And they added a couple of choice ones of their own as well. So same old, same old, nothing has changed here. You know, even as your single people can understandably resent this and get frustrated, there is a real danger that it fuels that same spirit of resignation. All this is true. Listen to what Jesus has to say about this. But to give a background to that, we go all the way back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that period of time when God was working with, with, this, with this nation of Israel, preparing them for the coming of Jesus, Marriage was the norm. When God created human beings, he created the male and female, husband and wife, and he told them to have children. Because the community of God's people grew by biological reproduction. Therefore, marriage was the norm. Bearing children was the norm. Barrenness, therefore, was seen as a curse. And singlehood was nowhere on the radar screen at all. Rather a bleak picture for singles, with one brilliant exception. One of their greatest prophets, the prophet Isaiah, said this. He said, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, uh, people who for various physical reasons were not able to have children, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This, this is a talk about a countercultural declaration. In a culture where from the very beginning marriage was the norm, God's people grew by biological growth and reproduction, helping to, hoping to usher in the Messiah through the birth of a male child. Singlehood was not on the radar screen and barrenness was a curse. Here was a countercultural statement that he would actually take people who could not have children and give them honor, a name, and a destiny and a legacy far more than any children could ever give. How was this going to be fulfilled? None other than the person of Jesus Christ when Jesus came. Now here, as soon as Jesus came to this world, God became man, not just in external appearance, but in essence human beings. Christians believe that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Before he opened his mouth, he immediately legitimized singlehood because they were only complete human being that ever lived on this earth. Jesus was single, which means that single people do not need to be married in order to be complete anymore. Also in the new covenant that Jesus ushered in, it was no longer a question of furthering the kingdom of God by having more children, although having children was still part of the equation. But rather God's people grew by proclamation that the Messiah had come and the family of God grew by spiritual commitment to Jesus through a relationship with Jesus, which means single people were no longer sentenced to barrenness. Single people can have spiritual sons and spiritual daughters, exactly as Isaiah prophesied. And Jesus said something pretty remarkable about this. On one occasion, he was talking about marriage to the disciples, how marriage is permanent. You're committed to one person for the rest of your life. And we'll talk about a lot more in the next couple of weeks. And the disciples said, oh my goodness, if that's the case, who should get married? And this is what, who, we shouldn't be getting married. Oh, why don't we just remain single? Rather cavalierly, right? And this is what Jesus said. He said, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, that is a permanent, unbreakable relationship, it is better not to marry. But look what Jesus said to them. Not everyone can receive this saying, 
but only those to whom it is given. In other words, it's a real special gift to able to be single. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, that's congenitally unable to have children. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. The people who looked after the harems of the great kings were made eunuchs for obvious reasons. And then he says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In order to accomplish the mission of Jesus, and because singlehood had certain advantages to it, they have chosen singlehood for the sake, or at least able to live with it contentedly because they are on mission. And then he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So here's what's happened so far. In the Old Testament, we see marriage up here, childbearing up here, barrenness occurs and singlehood not even on the radar screen. Jesus comes and makes the two of them together. He doesn't do it by bringing marriage down. He brings it by elevating singlehood up in the light of the mission and says it's a choice. Now the Apostle Paul, who was probably the most radical of, of the Christ followers in the first century and a leader in the early church, takes this one step further. And in Corinthians, which is a letter that he wrote to a community uh, in Greece in modern-day Corinth. <coughs> Here are a few extracts from chapter 7. He says, to the unmarried and to the widows, the single, I say that it is actually good for them to remain single. Okay, remember? <laughs> marriage up here, singlehood up here. Jesus said marriage and singlehood are the same. Paul says, hey, 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 hey. It's actually even better in some cases. Why? As I am. Because those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. By all means, get married. That's not the point. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, because the mission can be challenging and difficult, because marriage has its own set of distractions from the mission, and if the mission requires your undivided attention, there can be some significant advantages in remaining single. So when we put Isaiah, Jesus, and Paul together, this is what we get. Singlehood is very good. Marriage is very good. Jesus' mission is central. Each of those states have both advantages and disadvantages as far as accomplishing Christ's mission is concerned. You're free to choose. That's really what the scriptures say. That's the liberating message that I trust blows a fresh wave of, of, of vitality even into your understanding of your present state of singles. Now, this is a choice that will require grace. Single people will require grace. And as you will find out very quickly in the next couple of minutes, married people require a tremendous amount of grace as well to be able to live out Christ's mission. And so we both need to go to Jesus regularly for that. And I'll be amplifying that as we continue in this series. Tim Keller put it this way. Jesus frees single people from the shame that conservative cultures can sometimes impose upon them by saying, how come you're not married yet? At the same time, Jesus provides grace and strength for married people to carry out the sacrifices that parenting and marriage involves, which is often missing in some of the liberal cultures. So Christ addresses both of those situations at the same time. So this is the theological framework that we need to get a hold of. Now what I want to talk about for the rest of this message are some implications. Implications for singles and implications for married couples because it's the two of them together. One of them don't tune me out when I'm talking about the other. It's for both of us, but with specific focus in each group. First of all, for single people. And by the way, I understand that some of you single people are quite happy right now. 
with your singlehood, either because you've chosen that as a permanent state in your life, which Jesus and Paul commended, or you're happily single right now. If should marriage come, it should come along. That's fine. But uh, what I want to specifically address probably the larger percentage of those of you who are single who either because of all these kind of comments and messages that you've received or because you have a very natural desire to be married and don't feel you have that gift might be struggling a lot more. First and foremost, don't make marriage the end of a journey that you're on. Because mission is central. Marriage needs to be a point along the way, an important point, a crucially important point along the way. But it's a choice that you make along the way with your eyes still focused upon mission. By the way, this is also going to be very helpful for you because you have a very interesting and important and helpful grid to choose who this person is going to be. You can evaluate people that you might be interested in exploring as potential life partners through this grid. Are they going to be a distraction to the mission that I'm already on? Or are they going to be a help to the mission that I'm already on? That's why you also need to continue coming back for the next three weeks and listening to the messages on marriage as well. Secondly, don't settle. I know this can be hard, the wait can be long, but don't settle and don't lower your standards. A single gal in the church that I was working before uh, had this to share about other singles, some other singles. She said, they love the Lord, but the frustration of the wait, coupled with the pressures from both the church and the world to get married, has resulted in them marrying either nominal Christians or someone who is not a Christ follower. Since getting married, they have struggled. They had no idea it would be this hard to be with a person with a different relationship with God. They are now almost overwhelmed at the problems they are experiencing. I am finding more and more that we as singles simply don't understand the critical significance of choosing a partner wisely and not settling for anything less than God's best for us. So that's why these are the two main messages that comes across. You don't make marriage the end of a journey that you're on and don't settle for anything less. Now, there is one question though in all honesty I have to answer. Some of you are saying, okay, okay, so we get the theology. We can understand how that will be liberating. And we understand mission centrality and it being the grid through which we make a choice for a life partner. And yes, we understand the dangers of settling. But tell me honestly, what do I do with this huge dimension of my life that's my sexuality? And it is. The human sexuality is a huge dimension of us. It's a dominating force in, in our lives. So what do we do with it? Now, by the way, if there are single people here who are listening to me who are not followers of Jesus, this is a no-brainer for you. Because for you, this is not an issue. Within your worldview and your framework, premarital sex is perfectly okay. But you need to help me, uh, or bear with me as I address those who are singles, who as followers of Jesus have chosen uh, to restrict uh, sexual intimacy within the relationship of marriage. Many years ago, as I was preparing my messages for the first time and began to do my research in this area, someone sent me an article um, by a single woman named Fabian Harford. And the article was called Sex and the Single Woman. Listen, because if I said something to you as a married man, they will be, I would have no credibility at all. But listen to one who is single like you, wrestling head-on with this issue of unsatisfied sexual desire. She says, singleness presents a series of hardships. But for me... Learning to live without physical intimacy has provided the biggest challenge and deepest suffering of this season of my life. There is pain in watching my friends be fed one after the other with the thing I hunger for the most. There is pain in facing each morning with the knowledge that today there will be no daily bread for this hunger. Yet this struggle has taught me to value hunger. 
to embrace it as a means of getting to God rather than thinking of this hunger as an enemy. It's like fasting. God commands us to fast, but not so that he can prove he's as good as a cheeseburger by making our hunger go away. The goal of fasting is not for God to remove our hunger, but for us to learn that in the midst of the hunger, he is trustworthy. Nothing sounds so foolish to the world as a person who would pursue purity, not out of some sense of religious obligation, but out of a faith that there is a greater pleasure in store for those who would trust in the creator. And she sums up in this memorable sentence, nothing makes God look as beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forego any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. Can I say that again? And by the way, this doesn't just apply to sexual. Yeah. This is the foundation desire by which every inappropriate or inordinate desire can be conquered. Nothing makes God look so beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forego any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. And so this is perhaps the wisest answer that I've come across to that issue. All right, now implications for some married couples. And again, as I said, singles, don't tune me out because this includes you as well. This is not implications for married couples about marriage. This is implications for married couples about what we have learned about singlehood in particular. Now, one is, the first one is obvious. Stop making these thoughtless remarks. And by the way, I want to tell you, it's not easy for us who are married. And can I show you how difficult it is? When I was preaching a version of this message to our church for the first time, near the end in attempting to bless the singles, I said, and those of you who are still single. I hear I was actually preaching about this and I had slipped into that word with that one single word still in there, somehow implying that there was going to come a day when they have to get married. Well, I'm a lot better at it now. And a very gracious single friend pointed that mistake out to me. But I share that with you to show you married men and women, this is not easy because these messages that we communicate to them are so deeply ingrained within us too. So we need to be gripped by this theology of singlehood that I've unpacked for you from Moses to Jesus to Paul just as much as single people do. And then secondly, crucially important, let us partner with them in their pursuit of intimacy with God and mission execution. One of the common laments I would hear from single people in our church was that when, married, when, they married, when their friends got married, they said we were immediately forgotten because they now were pursuing a different circle of friends. Don't do that. You know why? Because of another very startling teaching by Jesus. On one occasion when Jesus was talking to a mixed group of people, his biological mother and brothers, half-brothers, were outside. And so someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, Jesus, your mother and brother are waiting outside. And Jesus said something that you and I don't realize the shock value of. You know what he said? He said, look at all these people here who are listening to me. Whoever hears me and obeys me, these are my mother and my brothers and sisters. As I said, you and I cannot understand or imagine the shock value. That was a culture in which loyalty to biological family was sent, trumped everything else, especially to parents. And here was Jesus saying, with his biological mother standing outside and his brothers, no, people who are connected with me through obedience to me and trust in me, they are my brother. In other words, Jesus has come to institute a brand new family that trumps every other family relationship. And so it means as married couples, we need to intentionally build relationships with single people, not superficially, but to bring them into our homes so they can share life with us, our joys, our sorrows, our celebrations, and above all, mission together. 
because we have something to give to them and they have something to give to us. And remember, that's important too. You don't do this as a project. <laughs> I remember one single person saying to me, every Christmas someone would come to him, a married person would say, are you taken care of? He said, I don't want to be taken care of. I want to be valued for who I am and for what I can give along with what I can receive. And that is so important to remember. It's not just us married couples who have things to give to single people, although we do. Companionship, fellowship, wisdom. But we also have a lot to receive from them as well. My wife and I have been blessed with a man, a single man that we've known for now 47 years, I think. Something, no, let me see. 1977, 20, 42 years we've known. Some of you know him. Uh, he's he worshipped in Rexdale for many years and now worships with us in Upper Room Church in Nevada. Peter has been a source of incredible enrichment in our lives. Uh, first of all, my, I'm married to a wife and if, uh, often she say, honey, how would you describe me? The first word that comes to mind is vitality and radiance. And she is who she is to a large extent because of our friendship with Peter. He has an incredible gift of encourage, encouragement. He's an artistically inclined like my wife is. And so he has just really helped her believe in many of her abilities when it comes to music and things like that. And so he, he has enriched me by blessing my wife. And then he has used this gift of encouragement to partner with me in the mission. Um, often when I have to drive to certain places, Peter will come with me. Uh, not because he wants to hear the message. He's heard the message so many times already. But he comes because he just has a delight in me as a person, who, as a friend who's been called to preach the word of God. And then he will always reinforce what I have said with such great encouragement. So he's been a wonderful encourager for me. And not only that, he will comment on my clothes. Uh, this sweater that I'm wearing is one of his latest gifts to me. He figured I needed one this color as well. And Peter's helped me out practically that way as well. And then when it comes to spiritual gifts, Peter's a gifted evangelist. He has no trouble talking to all kinds of people about Jesus. I'm a teacher. I'm not an evangelist. I don't talk to people about Jesus the way readily as he does. But many, many, many times, Peter will make connections with people, and then he will bring them to me, or he will send them to me, and then I have an opportunity to pick up from there. And we've done things together. Uh, many years when we have hospitality in our home and Sham and I would be busy in the kitchen helping, we'd always invite Peter to all of these gatherings because he will keep the people talking and looking after things there. He helps make the house look beautiful as well. He's an interior decorator by profession as well. So he has incredibly enriched us in all these ways in our mission and our ministry. And then he's watched our children grow up and he's watched our grandchildren grow up as well. And they all consider him our Peter because he's there for every birthday celebration. He's there for every uh, school graduation. He's there significant times in their lives when we bless them and send them off. In fact, they refer to him as our Peter. And on one occasion when uh, Vijay's son Noah was praying with my, with my wife and she was putting him down, twice he interrupted her in the evening prayer and said, don't forget to pray for Peter. Don't forget to pray for Peter. And it has been such a blessing for us. And by the way, you know how it all began? It began by Peter inviting us into his home. It wasn't even a married couple inviting a single person or the other way around. So single people, you also don't just hang around with other singles. Invite some married couples. And can I say to you, there's some significant benefits. There is nothing like spending three hours with a couple in your home with two young children who have been rambunctious the whole evening. They've created a mess on the dining table. The mother has been running around, Harriet, getting them ready. And when they finally go, you go, and you curl up in a, in a bed with a favorite novel and say, don't, I don't have to worry about being woken up early in the morning tomorrow. Nothing like a healthy dose of real life sometimes to dispel any false romantic notions you might have about marriage. And all joking apart, seriously, single people 
mingling that way in a home with married people have an opportunity to learn about marriage. One of the greatest gifts I was given uh, when I was in, at MIT in Boston and then when I came to Toronto was the director of uh, Power to Change and his wife at that time opened their home to me. And I learned so much about marriage as a single person just living in their home. Okay, so there you have it. She said, how do we pull this off? Well, let me quickly summarize what we learned today, by the way. Both marriage and singlehood are good. One of the purposes in marriage still remains having children. But barrenness is no longer a curse because spiritual children are the key to the growing of God's family. So singles can now have spiritual children and contribute to the building up of God's family and in fact can actually choose singlehood over marriage. The focus in either state is loving service to Christ while minimizing distractions. In the light of this, Christ is calling, and this is the sentence I want you to focus on. In the light of this, Christ is calling both singles and married couples through the ministry of hospitality to live out the magnificent truth that the family of God by spiritual regeneration is the ultimate, eternal, and foundational family far more significant than the family of God through procreation. Can I read that again? Christ is calling both singles and married couples through the ministry of hospitality to live out the magnificent truth that the family of God by spiritual regeneration is the ultimate, eternal, and foundational family far more significant than the family of God through procreation. So, how do we pull it off? Like everything else in the Christian life, it's a journey of faith. It will happen as we trust Jesus for the strength. So I'm just giving a few simple suggestions. First of all, review, review today's message this week. Otherwise, by Wednesday, you will have forgotten 90% of what you heard. That's what happens. If you do nothing but just listen on a Sunday morning, by Wednesday night, you will have forgotten 90% of it. So set apart some time to review this message, either by yourself, as a couple if you're married, maybe with a single person, other way around, or two single people, whatever the context is, review the message. So once again, this theology this biblical framework that we developed today will remain with you. And then ask Jesus to prompt you to a specific action test, step. He's the one that through his spirit prompts us. So Jesus, what do you want me to do? I've given several suggestions for single people as well as for married couples. And, the, and Jesus may point out something completely different for you as well. Thirdly, ask for strength and opportunity to follow through. Once you have some sense of what he's asking you to do, Ask for strength to follow through. Or maybe it's not strength. Maybe it's courage that you need. Maybe it's an opportunity. that you, Whatever you need now, practically, ask him for that. By the way, this asking is what prayer is all about. <laughs> prayer isn't some fancy, difficult to understand uh, concept that only expert Christians can do. Prayer is just talking to Jesus and asking him. And then begin to act. And by the way, it is when you begin to act that you will begin to experience the beginnings of the fresh wind of vitality into a singlehood married life. And may I say one thing in passing, if you're here as a non-Christ follower, thank you for coming with us, thank you for listening, and you know what, you could do this too. But to make it honest, but to make it honest, you could preface the asking by a simple qualifier. You could say, hey Jesus, if you really are there, if you really rose again from the dead, if you're really this God that we've heard about today, as I act upon this, will you allow me to experience it? If I had the time, I could tell you stories of at least two people that I know who heard me say something like that in various messages, decided to act upon it, and in the course of acting, discovered that Jesus was whom he said he really was. Let's pray it again. Lord, how, how desperately we long for you to do what you did with those two men on the road to Emmaus that first Easter. Instruct our minds again. Bring back to our minds that from today that we really need to hear. 
Speak so clearly that we will not miss your voice. Let there be a responsive cord in our hearts where our emotions are hooked, where we begin to feel and our desires are pulled in this direction, Father. And may the prospect of experiencing that fresh wind of the Spirit prompt us to act as you provide the opportunity and give us the strength. In Jesus' name, Amen.